Okay, any questions from last time? Because I didn't do a QA, so are there any questions left over lingering? No. Okay. In order to reveal himself to men, in the condescension of his goodness, God speaks to them in human words. Indeed, the words of God expressed in the words of men are in every way like human language. Just as the word of the Eternal Father, when he took on himself the flesh of human weakness, became like men. So I want to start, we're going to just quickly go over some principles tonight of reading the Bible properly. We talked about that a little bit last time, but I'm going to go a little faster this time because we've got to go through some just basic principles that the church gives us to read the scriptures properly so that we don't get lost and we don't get frustrated and the Bible doesn't become just a, d- a dusty book on our shelf. Okay? So the first question I ask you is, who is the author of the Bible? God. Holy Spirit. And a little silence there. Holy Spirit. Okay. Any other thoughts? Human beings. What's that? Human beings. Yeah. Right. The answer is not not easy, is it? Because we have two authors to any word that's in the in the sacred scriptures. Not only do we have a divine author, but we have a human author, and we have to take these things into account when reading the scriptures. Okay. As I just read you from the Catechism. The words of God to men are in some way like like the word of God becoming man is a humbling of the divine revelation, a humbling of God himself. And he allows himself to be placed within the constraints of humanity, the strict constraints of this creation. And that's where the word of God becomes a real challenge to us. How do we perceive the divine will in human words? Okay. How do we perceive the divine will in human words? First of all, we need to attempt to grasp what the human author is trying to say to us. Okay. And in order to do that, we have to take account of... Not only who is writing, well, first of all, who is writing, okay? And based upon who is writing, what is their background? Where have they come from? What are the questions we have to ask, Jennifer? Who is writing? And continue. What you just said, what their background is, what... Okay. Who they're writing to. Good. Who they're writing to. What those people's background is. Good. If we start, and this, oh, it drives me crazy when I'm talking to people about the scriptures and they begin importing all sorts of ideas and concepts from 2009. We talked about this a little bit last time. Okay. First and foremost, we have to try to gain a sense of who's writing, first of all, and who they're writing to. Okay. Open your, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We'll just do a little quick example of this. Acts chapter 9. Acts, of course, comes after the Gospels, friends. The Gospels are the beginning of the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts chapter 9. Some of you that attended my my session on St. Paul on marriage, uh, I talked about this point, so I apologize to you. (coughs) 
This is the story of the conversion of Saul, the conversion of St. Paul. <clears throat> Go ahead, Jennifer, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belongings to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But okay, and so forth. All right, let me ask you a question. Who is Saul persecuting? Churches. Yeah, the followers of Christ. But who does Jesus say Paul is persecuting? Himself. Yeah. So this moment of the, of the conversion of St. Paul is absolutely important, just as I've said before for many of you, that um, when someone goes through a conversion in their life, everything changes. A conversion is this. It's a, it's a 180 change to turn yourself the other way. And so when a person undergoes that, the moment of their conversion is very important in the way they go about thinking about things. Okay? So when Paul goes to write his epistles to his followers, do you think it's important that we have this text as a background? Absolutely. Okay? And, and just to conclude this, look at, at Romans chapter 6. Okay? Romans is the, the, uh, the next epistle or next book in your Bible. Romans chapter 6. Go ahead, Jennifer, from uh, verse uh, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay. How does St. Paul see baptism? You people that have been with me for a while, you better get this right. Participation in Christ's death and resurrection. What's the key word there in St. Paul's text? Yeah, into Christ. He sees baptism not as simply a baptism like Christ, but a baptism into Christ so that the person is transformed into Jesus Christ himself. Notice the parallel then between St. Paul's understanding of baptism and the story of his own conversion. This revelation that St. Paul suddenly realizes that he's not only persecuting people who are following Jesus, but through them he's persecuting Jesus Christ himself. He sees a revelation of what it means to be a Christian. It's not simply to be a follower of Jesus like it's a, to be a follower of Buddha. To be a follower of Jesus means to be plunged into the life of Jesus Christ. To partake in his life. Okay? And in particular, his resurrected life. And in particular, his resurrected life. Good. Okay? When Moses writes the story of Genesis, and he talks about the parting of the waters at creation... <laughs> What do you got to ask yourself? Who's Moses? And what experience did he have of parting of waters? 
of God's action coming down and the water splitting in half and Israel standing on dry ground to come to Mount Sinai and worship God. We have to begin to take seriously the human author. And only when we are willing to do a little research to find out who this guy is, what his background was, will we start to really be able to draw stuff from the scriptures. Okay? Antonio Fuentes, A Guide to the Bible. Very nice little introduction to the scriptures if you're, if you're taking notes. I'd recommend writing that down. A Guide to the Bible says, The inspired writers reported events as they saw them, in line with the cultural and mental outlook of the period in which they lived. Okay? So, and that's obvious. That's obvious. What we don't want to do is make the human author say more than he was ever intending to say. To start to apply his writings to 2009 in a way he never intended his writing to apply. We oftentimes do that in the spiritual life where we manipulate the text to mean something to me. Apart from what it meant to its original audience. Okay? So, Determine on what occasion he spoke, to, to, to whom he spoke, why he spoke. I, that's what I was saying to the sisters today as I was teaching them. Who, what, why, where, and when. Who, what, why, where, and when. If you answer those questions, you're going to be well on your way to understanding the text. Okay? I'll give you another example. Who, what, why, where, and when. In the Gospel of John, at the wedding at Cana, John the Evangelist says that on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. But in the context of the Gospel of John, John gives a, um, um, a repetition of the phrase, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And he counts off in that way seven days till he comes to the wedding at Cana. So that on the seventh day, a wedding is taking place. Now in the context of the Gospel of John, he began his Gospel in the beginning. With the whole background of the creation story. And on the seventh day of the creation story was the day of the union between man and God. And not only the day of the union between man and God, but also the day, as the text lays out in Genesis, the day of the union between Adam and Eve. It was also the day on which Eve turned to the serpent and separated herself from her husband. And so it is in the Gospel of John, where he sees the restoration of all things, a new man standing and a woman is there present. And there's also a bridegroom and a bride in the background of the story. A bridegroom and a bride that fail in their covenant obligation to provide the wine for the feast. And so the new Adam, or Jesus Christ, stands in his place and does what he should have done. But you see, it's only within that context that we're going to begin to get what we need to get out of the scriptures. Okay? Any questions about that? No. Who is the other author of the Bible? 
When we say, who is the primary author of the Bible? The Holy Spirit. The Catechism says, but since the sacred scripture is inspired, there is another and no less important principle of correct interpretation, without which scripture would remain a dead letter. Sacred scripture must be read and interpreted in the light of the same spirit by whom it was written. Okay? If you read it out of the context of faith, you misread the Bible. Those that have no faith and try to read the sacred scriptures will stumble and fail in their, in their goal. Okay? Because they, just like those that fail to get the perspective of the human author, fail to get the perspective of the divine author. Not necessarily so. Go ahead. Because I, uh, I, wa <laughs> I was not born in you know, Christians. Okay. And my first experience was reading the Bible from back to back. Yes. But I would say that God has the ability to grant faith, grant the eyes of faith to those that desire. Okay, and that's exactly what the church teaches. Think about Augustine, right? Sure, and I would say I would say um, that even for you, that reading, beginning to read the sacred scripture, like for all of us, beginning to read, read the sacred scriptures outside of the church, we're at a serious disadvantage. Now, don't get me wrong. God can still work upon the soul as long as we're open to that. But what happens today, oftentimes, especially with scripture scholars, is they attempt to come to the Bible simply on a human level. Okay? Apart from the divine authorship, apart from faith. And they end up massacring the Bible. Yeah. Isn't that kind of what's happened with the historical critical method yeah. introduced everywhere? You take out the divine and the supernatural and the, and the miraculous and, and the eyes of faith and you try to read it on a very human level and, and you lose who Jesus is. Exactly. In fact, I'll just say this now because I'm afraid to say it later. You've got all sorts of footnotes in your Bible that you need to be careful about because unless you know who the translator is, first of all, the way the translation is done, but also who's putting those footnotes in, some of those footnotes are not reliable, friends. Okay? So you need to be careful. It doesn't mean they're not helpful. Oftentimes they are helpful. But just because the footnote's there doesn't mean that's the Word of God. It's not. Okay? What Bible are you talking about? Yeah. Well, we're going to get to that question. <laughs> Eventually tonight we're going to get to it. Okay. Through all the words of sacred scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance, in whom he expresses himself completely. Well, you guys are out here. Hey, there's room in here. Well, we got a whole collection of people out here. Is there? There's oh, room. Come on, come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Okay, here we go. Through all the words of Saint 
scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance, in whom he expresses himself completely. You recall that one and the same word of God extends throughout the scriptures. That is one and the same utterance that resounds in the mouths of all the sacred writers. Since he who was in the beginning, God with God, has no need of separate syllables, for he is not subject to time. Okay? So through all the various writings of the Bible, through all the various stories, we're presented, in a sense, with one picture, with one word. We're presented with Jesus Christ. And it's the story of Jesus Christ that is presented over and over and over again. If you know who Jesus Christ is, you know the Word of God. Because the Word of God is much more than dead letters on a page. The Word of God is alive among us. And it's Jesus Christ who is presented to us in the pages of the sacred scripture. If you know him, if you know the picture, you will be able to see his face throughout the entire Bible. It's one story. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And it's my next point. That when we fail to read the Old Testament as Christians, we fail to understand who Jesus is. And when those people that read the Old Testament without Jesus fail to understand what God is trying to communicate. So it goes both ways. Okay? Open to Luke chapter 24. Let's see an example of this. Luke chapter 24. This is a story, Jesus appears post-resurrection story, he appears on the road to Emmaus and and to the men that are traveling, okay, and they they say to him, he says, where are you coming from? Jerusalem, and he says, well, where are you going, why are you going? He says, don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? And he says, what? He says, where have you been? They crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so we're going to pick up the story there in verse 25. Go ahead, Jennifer. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. Okay, and so forth in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds so to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. Okay, now, when Jesus gives a Bible study, what does he do? He opens up their minds. To what? To the Old Testament. Testament. Jesus doesn't say, hey, well, don't you remember that I said? No. He goes back to the Old Testament. He starts with the writings of Moses, in other words, Genesis. He walks them all the way through the Old Testament. And all 
only once they have that foundation does he make them understand who he is. Okay? So it's absolutely essential when we're reading the New Testament that we read it in the context of the Old Testament. Okay? Furthermore, as I said just a second ago, we have to turn that around. That if we read the Old Testament without Christ... It's like reading an epic story without the great hero of the story. If you take the hero out of a great story, the story's not going to make any sense. Okay? Tell me why the Jews have so much trouble. I won't comment on that. St. Paul himself himself in 2 Corinthians says, even to today, just like Moses had a veil over his face, still, those that do not know Christ read the Bible with a veil over their face. Or the veil over the scriptures. Because they cannot perceive in it the fullness of the revelation of the word of God. Okay. But even Jesus had to interpret to the uh, to the to the apostles. Yeah. They, they didn't understand and go, well, what do you mean? Go, well, how long how much longer do I have to be here to explain to you? They didn't even know it. But that's my point. That's my point. That when read, even these guys who who had gone to Jerusalem, had listened to Jesus, saw what they look, these guys who were on the road to Emmaus weren't just traveling by. They knew Mary Magdalene. They knew the story. They would have been there. They heard the first news of the resurrection. And they were bewildered. But it was only when Christ said, no, you've got to read the whole context. You've got to see the whole story. You've got to get the epic story of Scripture. And then it will make sense to you. As the Catechism is saying, it's one story. It's, and unfortunately, how often do we, we don't read like that, do we? No. Well, okay, well, first of all, how do we read it? We might read a couple verses for our spiritual benefit. Right? Um, or, or what do we do? We start in the, the first couple of chapters of Genesis. We read for a little while, then we give up, we close the book, and then we decide we're going to start in John. <laughs> There's no epic story to it. If you read any other story like that, you would get lost, wouldn't you? But we get frustrated with the Bible because uh, that's what we do. It's our fault, not the Bible. We got to start to read the whole story as the word of God, as one word that reaches from beginning to end, one story. Aristotle says that the, the most essential thing to a story, its life and soul, is the plot. And with every plot, there's a problem and there's a resolution. There's a problem and there's a resolution. If we read the resolution, If we find out what the great hero accomplishes without reading what the problem is, then what he accomplishes doesn't even look all that great. But it's only in light of the problem that the hero can really stand out and accomplish what he needs to accomplish. Okay? What's the problem? A man's fall from grace. Good. If you read any story of the Bible apart from the fall of man, you're going to be lost. It's an essential component to the story, without which there is no story. There's no plot, okay? Because there's an essential part of it that's missing. Cardinal Jean Daniel says to ignore chapter 3 of Genesis is to risk jarring one's faith in the redemption. 
Why? Why? Because then the redemption is not needed. Exactly. If there's no problem, friends, then who's Jesus? He's not the Savior. And that's the problem, unfortunately, that we, that we face a lot, a lot of times when we're talking to people about the Bible or talking to them about Jesus. They don't perceive there's a problem. Honey, you can come in. Your, your mom's here. Sue, where are you? Oh, she was here. Go check the gym. And if she's not there, you come back and you have a Bible study with us. She's not there? She's not. She'll be there. Or she might not. Okay. So it's always within that context. And also, once we have the plot at the forefront of our minds, the resolution, the answer. And what's the answer? Jesus and the resurrection. I had you read a text at the end of the class last time. Philippians. So turn there real quick. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Come on, friends, you can find it. This is our second time. Chapter 2, verse 6. Go ahead, Jennifer. I'm not there. Oh, come on, guys. All right, go ahead. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. He was known to be of human estate, and it was thus that he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that Jesus' name every knee must bend in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. Interpret that text for me, friends. Okay. We talked about it last time. I gave you plenty of hints. Based upon what I've just been saying, what we've just been talking about, what was our answer last time when I first asked you that? What's he talking about? What's the, what's the, what images are coming to your mind? What did we say? Everything bowing before him, the last judgment. Okay, the last judgment and the, and the glorification of Christ, and the, and the, and now what do you have to say? Same thing. No. What do you have to say? All right. So I, I went through it over the over the week. Good. Who else did their homework? Who else did their homework? And it should come on, friends. If you don't put in the work, you're not going to bear fruit. Go ahead. All right. So it says on. Um, that Jesus in six, Jesus was in the form of God. He did not deem equality with God something to grasp that. Of course, okay. that's exactly the temptation of Adam and Eve. Okay, they were right. in the form of God. You shall be God. In the image and likeness of God. Right, they're in the image and likeness okay. of God. Right, mm-hmm. and then, but and and Satan's uh, words to Eve are, "You shall be as gods, knowing good from evil." So that's exactly what they grasped at. Jesus, being the second Adam, did not. Um. Okay, so it says, emptying himself, taking the form of a slave. By this, actually, I had um, 
by the sweat of your brow you shall get you shall um, get your bread to eat. Right, because essentially, right, instead of Adam ruling over creation as God's intention was, he becomes a slave to creation. Okay, so then, so Jesus also becomes a slave and accepts the condition of Adam. Keep going. Yeah. All right. So he humbled himself, obediently accepting the death on the cross. So this is receiving, um, uh, receiving Adam's disobedience that leads to death. Right, Adam's disobedience leads to death. Jesus becomes man. He shares in that disobedience, takes upon our sin, and receives that death also. Okay. Okay. Um, the Father raised him up and gave him the name above every other name. So God names Adam. Adam names Eve and the animals. So where Adam had dominion over creation mm-hmm. and named everything in creation, and then he becomes really the subject of creation, things to fear after the fall. Christ um, is now now has the name which is above every other name. So the name that Adam had, Christ has, and it's revealed. He always had it, but now it's revealed in creation. Okay. All right, and then um, every knee must bend, and then um, so uh, and so on. Right. So God's intention was, uh, I should say, His intention. Right. The plan for Adam and Eve was that they would reign over creation. Right. Good. Rule rule over the earth and subdue it. Good. Okay. Right. So good. So is this is this so much about the glorification of of God, or more more about the salvation of man? Okay. So I want to just read that through with you real quick because what you said was excellent. Who though he was in the form of God, who was in the form of God? Jesus Christ and Adam. Good, but Adam first. We, look, we have to get the contextual background. He's not writing a vacuum. Wait, isn't that nice? Jesus was in the form of God, and then he decided to humble himself. Jesus did this because of God's plan from the beginning for man. In the beginning, man was made in the image and likeness of God. But, but, I'll put in a but there, he did not count equality with God a thing to be taken or grasped. Unlike Adam, who though he was in the form of God, still tried to become like God apart from God. Right? Remember what the serpent says to Eve. Oh, that won't happen to you if you eat of it. See, God's afraid because you're going to become like him. And what should Eve have said? I'm already like him. But instead, they grasped for something that was not theirs to take apart from God. Apart from the gift of God. And so forth. We have to go through this. But you see, the point is, friends, that St. Paul understands the Old Testament. He understands the problem. So then when he goes and looks at Jesus Christ, he sees the answer. I could tell you what the answer is back in Genesis chapter 3. And the answer is to do what Adam didn't do. Namely, to be obedient to God. Let the chips fall where they may. To stand up to the serpent. And to say, not here, not now. This is my realm. Let death come. I trust in God. The Catechism says that at the moment of the fall, Adam let his trust for God die in his heart. Because he should have stood in the face of the serpent, not knowing what was to come, but trusting in the love of God that he would not leave him to death. 
Jesus Christ did that. And he walked out of the tomb on the third day. So context, context, context. Always in the context of the sacred scriptures. I have a quote here from a Bible scholar. He says, a verse of scripture taken out of its original context can be made to mean almost anything. It is therefore crucial to study prayerfully and carefully what the text says and what it was likely to have meant to to its first author and its first audience. And having done this, only then to ask the question, how does it apply to me? What did it it mean to his first audience when Jesus said, eat my flesh? And like I said to you last time, it didn't, they didn't have pictures of the priest standing in there with an unleavened little wafer that was pressed out by the nuns. There was a whole context to that. And that context was found in the Old Testament. Okay? So I'm giving you your first criteria or principle the church lays out for you. Always read, read within the content and unity of the whole of sacred scripture. A text without a context is no text at all. Okay? Always within the within the content and unity of the whole Bible. The next principle the church gives, okay, is to all. We mentioned this last time with Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, I say Cardinal Ratzinger because he wrote it. He wrote that book. He was he was a cardinal. Um, is to always read within the living tradition of the church. Always read within the living tradition of the church. Okay? And that includes reading with a guide. Always reading within the context of the church fathers. The Bible was written within the context of a believing community. And I'm here to tell you that believing community was Catholic. And they were doing the same things that we do today. They were seeing people be baptized They were seeing people receive the Eucharist. And it was within that context that the scriptures were written. And so we always read within the context of the church, within the living tradition of the church. I have a great quote. I have way too many books up here to read from. From Cardinal Jean Danielo. Was that Catholic lowercase or uppercase? What's that? Was that Catholic lowercase or uppercase? Uppercase. All right, so that's the New Testament that's written in that context. And the Old Testament, the canon, is decided in the context of that. No, what you're, what you're doing is putting a false, a false dichotomy between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. The New Testament church is the Old Testament church, just as you are the same person you okay. were yesterday. Okay, all right. Okay, but hopefully, after you walk out of here today, you'll be a little bit more than you so were yesterday. So we're not heretics to the Jews. What's that? We're not heretics to the Jews. It's those who didn't go along. Let's deal with that question later. <laughs> Look what Carlos Gingano says. He says, the sacraments carry... Wait, you guys are coming in here late. Whoa! I'm almost done. We've been teaching CCP. Oh, all right. We'll give, you a, we'll give you a pass. We'll give you a pass. All right, all right. Give yourself a glass of wine. The sacraments carry... The sacraments carry on in our midst the memory of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. For example, the flood... The passion and the baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. And these three phases of God action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. The same divine activity made present in three different forms. The flood, 
the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, and our own baptism. Notice what he says. The same divine reality made present. You have an opportunity when you stand in the context of a living tradition of the church, especially in the context of the liturgy, to experience, as I said, the manifestation of the same work of God. It's that one work of God that we need to get hold of and understand. That work of God by which we are saved. By which we become partakers in the divine nature. <clears throat> Cardinal Daniel goes on to say, he says, the fact is that the life of ancient Christianity was centered around worship. And worship was not considered to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. He goes right at it because he knows this is a common misperception. That we have our secular, we have our normal life, right? Then we go to Jesus to get our goodies in the church. Then we go back to our life, and those are supposed to help us out. Right? He says no. The sacraments were thought of as the essential events of Christian existence and of existence itself, as, as being the prolongation of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. So, no, it's, it's not that you go into the church and you get your goodies and you come back to your life. That is your life. And unfortunately, right now, we step out of it to have to go dig ditches and things like that for a living. But that is our life. And when we enter into there... We experience the same mystery of the hand of God that Noah experienced, and Moses experienced, and Peter experienced when he started sinking down into the water. It's that same hand of God that reaches in the hand of the priest to the baptismal font and draws us out of that baptismal font to give us life. So it's that one mystery, that same divine action of the overflowing love of God that we experience. And in the context then of the liturgy and of the life of the church, all time disappears. And we get to experience with Moses and with Noah and with Peter that hand of God touching us. Like the Mass. Yeah, the Mass. When we read it within, when we read the scriptures within that context, Tim Gray gives us a great image for this idea of living, uh, of reading within the living tradition of the church. He says, it's like standing within a church with stained glass windows, where the sun just pours in from the east. And you've all stood, and I hope, in beautiful church with beautiful stained glass windows when those colors are flooding in and the picture just literally comes alive. And he says, when you don't read within the living tradition of the church, when you don't read as a Catholic, it's like stepping outside of the door of the church and standing on the outside of a stained glass window. And how many of you have stood on the outside of a stained glass window? It's pretty ugly. It doesn't look like much. Okay. Chesterton says the same thing in his book, The Everlasting Man. Where he says, he says, so many people stand at the door of the church and rail against things which they, can't, which they cannot see because they're standing face to face. They're standing too close to the door. And they're yelling and screaming at something they have no idea what's inside. So he says, stop. 
Either get inside and see what's in there, or get back on the mountain where you can see the context of the whole of the work of God, and then you'll see what we're seeing. Okay? But don't stand at the wrong place and try to read the Bible from that vantage point, because it's going to look like a stained glass window from the outside. Okay, and the final criteria the church gives, or principle the church gives for reading the scriptures, is, uh, is the principle of the analogy of faith. And what's the principle of the analogy of faith? Um, I found this great, this great article. I was, I was doing some research on this about six months ago. And it's just a nice little summary that I thought was helpful. The analogy of faith is not the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, but that all Scripture is in agreement with, and in agreement, and will not contradict itself. It assumes the unity and harmony of teaching throughout the Bible. In other words, when multiple passages say something about a topic, either explicitly or implicitly, then what those passages say about the topic will be consistent and will not be contradictory. For example, when Psalm 34.15 speaks of God as having eyes and ears, whereas John 4.24 says God is spirit, the analogy of faith means that these passages are not contradictory, as they might appear at first glance. We can reconcile them when we recognize that in Psalm 34.15, the author is using a figure of speech and is not asserting that God has literal, physical eyes and ears. Okay? And that's a pretty obvious one if you're reading the text. Okay? But there's other passages, such as regarding the divinity of Christ, which are not so clear and not so easy to interpret. Some passage, passages which seem to indicate that Christ is only a man. For example, the fact that he grew in knowledge and wisdom. Hmm? He grew in knowledge and wisdom. And it leads some people, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, to destroy the text of Scripture based upon one text out of context. Okay? And the principle of the analogy of faith says no, because we have another text which says explicitly in the Gospel of John... That the Word of God is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Explicit testimony as to the divine nature of Christ. Then, when we read about Christ's knowledge growing, we have to ask ourselves, how is that possible? And that's where theology comes in to help us. Okay, And that's where research comes in to help us. And that's where a thought, our, our intellect comes in to help us. Then how is it possible? Now we're challenged with the fact that yes, Jesus is God. And yes, he is man. And I need to think about this more and understand the relationship between the two. That's what the church struggled with for the first four, even 500 years. How can we understand Christ? But you have to hold on to both of those texts. And you can't throw one out for the other. Okay. And since you gave that um, example of the Jehovah's Witnesses and that particular passage, beginning with John, they came out with their own translation of the scriptures, yeah. and they altered that yeah. very in order to correspond to their teaching. Altered the scriptures. Yeah, they did. Okay. So when, a, when a Jehovah's Witness exactly, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and they try to read you the Bible, tell them to close their Bible because it's not a Bible. Okay, they've corrupted the text. Wow. Okay, the New World Translation. How did they tra change it? 
They trans they changed their English translation to say oh to say a god. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Okay, and the reason they say that is because there's no um, uh, what's the word? There's no article. Okay, there. But if you read the context of the prologue of the Gospel of John, the article is left out all over the place. Okay, and um, even in relation to where it's explicitly about God the Father, and so there's their their text is there's no there's no backing for that at all. Okay. Um, in fact, there's a great article on Catholic Answers website, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that you can look up that, that, that whole point. Um, finally, finally, um, a few points about the different senses of Scripture that you have to, that you have to understand. Okay? First of all, the foundational interpretation for every, every Scripture, every verse of the Bible, is that we have to interpret it literally. Literally. Now, what do I mean by that? Jennifer's going, what do you, what do you think, Jennifer? Are you nuts? Yeah. Literally, right? God has eyes and ears. No. Okay. I like to add the word, well, the church says this, they use two words, historical or literal. I, I like to say the historical, literal interpretation. And what do we mean by, mean by historical, literal? What did the author intend to communicate to us. Okay? Again, we don't want to stretch him to make him say things that he never intended to say. I didn't finish this quote from, um, from Fuentes. It's just it's great. I'll finish it now. He says, The inspired writers reported events as they saw them in line with the cultural mental outlook of the period in which they lived. For example, <clears throat> they will say that the sun goes down or that it stopped. They would be telling lies if they were to say, to say otherwise. The only aspect of this which is of interest to the reader of the Bible is knowing what people mean when they express themselves in this way. If we realize what they mean, then we will understand the core of revealed truth much, much better. It is God himself, in the case of the sun stopping for Joshua or any other miraculous event, who intervenes in history by using natural occurrences and changing them to suit his plans. So that man thereby discovers that it is God who is addressing him, who is telling him that he is not alone, but that God is his protector. So, when we say you must interpret in a literal way as the foundation, we're simply saying that you've got to try to gain a grasp of what the author meant originally. And only then can we apply properly the scriptural text to the spiritual life. Okay? Which is the next principle of interpretation. Okay, that not only do the words of the scriptures point to literal historical realities, but also those realities themselves can have a further signification, a further meaning. Okay? St. Thomas Aquinas says, the first significa signification whereby words signify things belongs to the first sense, the historical or literal. That signification whereby things signified by words have themselves also a signification is called the spiritual sense. And what do we mean by that? That not only are we writing about historical facts taking place, such as the flood, but those historical facts of, the, facts of the flood also have a spiritual application to our lives today. 
And within that spiritual application, there are three possible interpretations that the church gives. Okay? One is the typological interpretation. What's the typological interpretation? What's that? I was just going to say typology, like the second. Don't use the same word. No, I didn't. Okay. That, uh, that an event or a person in the scriptures can signify or be a symbol of someone else or some other event. I'll give you an example. The Red Sea, the cross in the Red Sea, is a type of baptism. baptism. Okay? And God intended it to be a type of baptism. So that when, the, when Moses is writing about the crossing of the Red Sea, he intends to literally write about a historical event. But God, as the primary author of the scriptures, intends us to understand in that event some greater revelation or greater mystery that is parallel, namely our baptism, whereby our old self, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, dies and is buried in baptism, and the new man, like Moses and Israel, come forth from the Red Sea, from the waters of baptism, to encounter God on Mount Sinai. Okay? Further, a moral interpretation, a moral application of the text. And this is where most of us go right for the moral, right? What does this mean to me? How does this affect my life? What am I supposed to do based on this? Unfortunately, if we dislocate it from its literal historical context, we dislocate it from its original meaning. And then, as I was reading to you earlier, we can make a verse mean anything we want. Okay? So always within the historical context. So an example of this, the crossing of the Red Sea, the moral application of our moral life, what should we do? Faith. Having faith in God. What was it like? Imagine. What was it like for Israel, for the, for the people, to stand there, to look behind them, and see Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the greatest war machine on earth at the time, the Red Sea before them, and Moses lift up his, his staff and the sea part. Can you imagine seeing this happen? And furthermore, taking the steps of faith by which they walked into what had been a sea and now stood up on either side of them with walls of water. Imagine what kind of faith that would have taken. That's the moral application. Okay? What's wrong, Jennifer? Okay. Why do you always give you? I always focus on her because she's I sitting you do. What? front and center. I, need you. <laughs> I was just imagining myself there and what I was. Yeah, but that's okay. That's absolutely essential is imagining yourself there and seeing what's taking place, and then you'll be able to properly interpret the scriptures. Okay? Then you'll start to it'll start to bear fruit for you. Okay? The, the uh, anagogical or eschatological sense of Scripture is the sense whereby that literal event is applied to the end times. Applied to the end times. So again, the crossing of the Red Sea could be an image of the crossing from this world to the next. Okay, I'll give you another, another quick one. Is a literal interpretation that's the tree of the cross. Not the tree of the cross, I'm sorry. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Okay? 
as St. Thomas Aquinas says, when texts of the scripture are written as historical accounts, they're to be taken as historical accounts. A literal historical tree in the Garden of Eden is then applied typologically to the Eucharist, to the tree of the cross. The moral application, well, you could gain things by what they did in relationship to the tree. Okay? And eschatological, that at the end of times, at the end times, we will stand or sit at the banquet table of God in paradise again to receive the gift of God's own life. Okay? The Eucharist only being a shadow of that. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. I'm out of time, but I'm not done. Okay? Because you guys have all sorts of things in your hands that I can use really quick. There's a little handout you have because my last thing I want to talk to you about are some basic tools you can use when you're reading the Bible. The first tool, I say, it's not even a tool, it's a, it's a, um, I don't know what you want to call it. Before you ever get to your tools, you have to slow down. Like I said last time, if you're going to read the Bible for all it's worth, you can't read it like the New York Times. Okay. I have a note here. It's not fast food Jesus. <laughs> so slow down. Okay. And only then, if you begin to slow down, are willing to do some work, will you be able to read a document that was written 2,000, 3,000 years ago and start to draw from it what you need to draw from it. Okay, because remember, you're not going to read it and all of a sudden get the moral sense for your life. Because the moral sense is rooted in and based upon a literal historical understanding of the text. And only when you get that can you apply it. Okay? So I'll point out to you a few sources that are helpful for you. Many of you have the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I have for you on your first page a copy of the section on baptism. If you're going to read about the baptism of Christ in the Gospel of John, it's a good idea to go and read the section on baptism in the Catechism. Furthermore, if you look at this text, it has nice footnotes at the bottom, doesn't it? Look at footnote number 6. You have 2 Corinthians, you have Galatians 6, and then you have Romans chapter 6, which is what we just read, right? Baptized into Christ. So it's a great reference back to the scriptures to understand the text. So a way to start reading your Bible, for all it's worth, when you go to Sunday Mass, you hear a gospel story read. It's the feast of whatever feast it is. Go home and be willing to sit down for an hour or two and open up your catechism, open up your Bible, and read. Okay? And do a little research there. So that's, so that's there. And look at what a, a beautiful quote in, in a, a text in uh, 1214 there, on the, in the Catechism. It's a second paragraph. This sacrament is called baptism, after the central rite by which it is carried out. To baptize in Greek means to plunge or immerse. And so we call it baptism. So baptism is a plunging into, not only water, but according to St. Paul, a plunging into Christ. Okay? Yes. Okay, your next, your next thing I have for you, I know I'm, I'm over time, so, is a nice little Bible atlas. If you go down to your local, um, what, are the, what are the bookstores? Barnes um, and Noe, you go to the Bible section, you're going to find all sorts of things on clearance. 
And Bible atlases are one of the things you'll find on clearance. Okay? I found a great little Bible atlas. Okay? Um, and it was way too big for my little Bible case, so I went down and I had it copied into a little tiny one. Where'd I shrunk it down. Where'd you do that? Where'd you have that done? At the, at the copy store, you know? And I showed, so I spent, I spent a couple of dollars, but you know what? I've had this now for 10 years, and whenever I'm reading somewhere in the Bible, I go to the text, because look, if you're reading a story, and you have no idea what's taking place or where it's taking place, how are you going to get the image? I didn't say this before, but one of the primary ways to start to draw uh, value from the text is to go and stand in the text itself, to see through the author's eyes what he's seen, to stand on Mount Tabor when, when our Lord is transfigured. Okay? And one way to do that is to get out your atlas and walk with Jesus through the Holy Land. For those of us who cannot go to the Holy Land, this is a good way to start doing it. Okay? All right. Where's my thing? I'm sorry, I'm stealing yours. Okay. Next. Next is a concordance. And a concordance is a nice little handy book, which I meant to bring up here to the front of the room. And you'll see what, it, what a concordance is. It's not there. Oh, right here, Father. Right next to his phones. Right, right over here. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay, you can go down. Uh, look, I'm not lying to you guys. You see the yellow thing? Six ninety-seven. What a find! Originally fourteen ninety-nine. You get last year's version, just fine. Okay, Strong's concordance. You know, this is a word concordance. There's also phrase concordances, but <clears throat> this is very helpful because if you're going to look up a text and you want to know some context, okay, this will guide you along a little bit. No, it's not perfect, but I gave you an example there of the word rock, right? Very. Uh, um, uh, important, right? When you're looking at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and you read, when Jesus says, Thou art a rock upon which I'll build my church, you're going to ask yourself, What's he talking about? Don't just read the text like you've read it a hundred times before. What's he talking about? And if you look at the next entry under Matthew, oh, no, actually, go down to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 there in your thing. See it? Down at the bottom? Upon this rock I will build my church. You see that? The R stands for rock. Well, look at that. Just above there, there's another reference in the Gospel of Matthew. A man who built his house upon a rock. You remember the story? The story of the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the storm came. And the storm came and blah, blah. Who's the wise man in the Old Testament? Solomon. And did Solomon build a house? He sure did. And where did he build that house? In Jerusalem. And what building stands in that place right now? The Dome of the Rock. Okay? It's only a few chapters later in chapter 9 of Matthew that some, people, some men come to him and, and say, You are the son of David. You are the son of David. And Jesus never denies it. Well, the son of David was Solomon, who built the temple, the house of God, upon the rock, the rock of Moriah. Okay? It was believed that that rock was the capstone to Hades. And as long as that rock was in place, the gates of hell would never prevail upon the earth. 
And so when the new Solomon is going to build his new house, just after Peter professes, thou art the Christ, thou art the king. Who am I? You're the king. And he says, yeah. And as the king, I'm going to do what the old Solomon did. But I'm going to do it even better. I'm going to build a new house. And that house, like the old psalm, is going to be built upon the rock. And the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Context, context, context. And the concordance helps you get that text across, okay? All right, fine. And then I've got all sorts of other things, other commentaries there. And, um, oh, okay, I'm not going to get into this because I don't have time. But I just got to warn you. The Roman Catholic Bible has the answer. This is a classic anti-Catholic text. Oh, it's super, oh, it's wonderful anti-Catholic stuff. Okay? Um, so just be careful that when you're reading that. I'm putting that in there to an example. The challenge will be presented to you. And then the following text that I give you are commentaries that are very helpful. And one of those that I'll just leave, leave off here with tonight is the Ignatius... The Ignatius Study Bible, real thin little um, commentary text that's, that's helpful. You can pick the things up for 10, 12 bucks a piece on books of the Bible. Great way to get started on a particular book. Okay? Oh, I have so much more to say, guys, but I just, we're way out of time. So here's the thing we're going to do let's take a break. Those that need to leave, exit stage right, and, um, and I'll stay around and we'll, we'll come back together here in about three minutes for a short five minute question and answer period. Okay? So stand up, stretch your legs at least, have some wine or water in the back, and uh, we'll come back together. If you need to leave, there's the door. <laughs> It's for um, everyone. Everyone. The mice are hosting it. Oh, uh, okay. We're paying the side so we'll ask for a little donation for your meal, but um, it's, it's really open to everyone. Thank you. <laughs> 
Okay, so afterwards, if you want to come over and get information from him, he'll be there. Okay, anything about, about the Bible? <laughs> yes. Um, you mentioned something about uh, uh, reading in context, in the Old Testament context, for Jesus saying, you must eat my flesh. You talking about the Passover lamb, where that was the third thing that had to be done, was you had to eat the flesh of the lamb. Sure, the that absolutely is. That there's a context, right? Also, what other eating episodes do we have where God tells people they're to eat and they're going to get life? Where? If you eat this, you will live. Amen. Well, what about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Okay? If you eat this, you will live forever. Jesus Christ is quoting for the first time in the entire Bible from Genesis chapter 3 of the exile of Adam. When they were cast out of paradise, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. But the Passover lamb, too, because if you didn't do that third Absolutely. thing... Absolutely, the Passover lamb, the man, these are all preparations the for the revelation of the Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah, but... I have a question about commentaries, because I know that not all commentaries are created equal. Is there a place that, like, has a list of, like, orthodox commentaries? Mostly, I would say, look, stick to the church fathers. Stick to the church fathers. Okay. Okay? And... Um, publishers that are that are trustworthy, and if you st- stick to those two things, you're most likely you're going to be okay. Uh, especially at an entry level, look, you're not going to be going and getting you know, what, I mean, you know, big, huge, you know, things like that. You know, Ignatius Ignatius Press puts out quality stuff, so I, you, know, you can trust their stuff. Navarre commentaries, you know, you know, you're not going to fall into heresy. And besides, besides, if you're a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And you're reading a text, and they say something that's heresy. I can pretty much trust that you're going to get it. <laughs> yes, Jennifer. Not always the, the new look, look, I call it the Catholic sense. Right? I will trust a faithful follower of Christ when they're reading a commentary to be able to pick up on whether the other guy believes in God or not. It comes out pretty quick. Right? Christopher <laughs> Um, is it your tradition that Moses wrote all of Genesis? Genesis and the whole Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You didn't know that? How about this for a church father uh, commentary on... This is... Look, the fathers, this is St. Ephraim. And the fathers, there's just no way to beat the fathers, okay? Because they understood having insight and dreaming about the text. you got to let yourself dream a little bit. You know? That's what I was telling the sisters the other day. You're going st- to read the story of the baptism of Jesus. You better go stand on the Jordan River. And let those people, let the Pharisees ask the questions to John, John the Baptist right in front of you. Okay? Stand in the darkness with Nicodemus as he's whispering to Jesus. So, why is he whispering? Who else is here that he's got to whisper from? Okay? Listen to this. Talking about paradise. Should you wish to climb up a tree with its lower branches, it will provide steps before your feet, eager to make you recline in its bosom above. On the couch of its upper branches, so arranged is the surface of these branches, bent low and cupped, while yet dense with flowers, that they serve as a protective womb for whoever rests there. Who has ever beheld such a banquet in the very bosom of a tree, with the fruit of every savor ranged for the hand to pluck, 
Each type of fruit in due sequence approaches, each awaiting its turn. Fruit to eat and fruit to quench the thirst. To rinse the hands there is dew and leaves to dry them afterward. And when we, do we get that? Do we come up with that stuff when we read Genesis? <laughs> but you've got to let yourself get into the story and ask yourself, what did it smell like to stand in paradise? This was God's plan for mankind. What did it smell like? Okay? And then go walk into church on Sunday. That's what it smelled like. Okay? The flower blossoms just overloading you. The sound of the river flowing by, like a sound like you've never heard. What did the water of the river of life taste like? Okay? When you start to read the Bible in that way, then all of a sudden it can become alive to you. And then it is God's word, as I started out the whole series last time, saying, with uh, the quotation of St. Ambrose, I think it was, saying, when you read the scriptures, when the sacred scriptures, you hear God walking in the garden, calling to you, Adam, where art thou? Calling you in. Okay? Any other questions? Yes? It's just a comment. Okay. And, and I'm I'll allow it only because, I don't normally allow comments, but go ahead. <laughs> For this indulgence. Uh, no question, Mark. But uh, I've been trying to read the Bible daily for several years now. Trying, not quite succeeding. But uh, the thought I had, and is still with me, is that you know, we're, we're mostly, especially in some place like Northern Virginia, kind of information junkies. And a lot of us wouldn't dream of going through a day without at least opening the Washington Post for a few minutes. Oh, I did. Or the times. All right, all right, all right. Trust me, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the point is, is that we want to be kind of connected with the world in which we live. But as Catholics and as Christians, the world in which we really live is the kingdom of God. And you need to get in touch with that every day. And one thing has to bind the other, and that is, I'm still working on this also, I might add, but if you have a daily prayer life, it feeds your daily scripture study. And if you have a scripture study, it feeds the other. Mm -hmm. And I've had periods in my life where I picked up the Bible, read a couple of chapters, thought that's interesting. Kind of, you know, kind of curious about it, but don't quite get the whole thing. Didn't. But uh, after I got connected with the men's prayer group some years back, and you know, that kind of was a door opener for me. I began to read the scriptures with a whole different perspective. And, you know, it's just like the pages were on fire. So I commend to you uh, everything he has said here tonight. But, uh, you know, study, study often, study daily if you can, and, and pray. Amen. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll, we'll uh, we'll uh, finish off with um, a, little, a little enticement. Uh, for you, because as I said last time, that this is all, this is just two classes, a little preparation. We have little tools in place. I know that actually these two classes are the most exciting they could be because we're not actually getting to the Bible itself, because we're just preparing ourselves for after Easter when we're going to get into the Bible itself. And we're going to go from from the uh, from Genesis to Revelation in uh, seven or eight classes. Oh, we are. I've done it before. We'll get through it. Okay. How many of you guys have done that with me? So it's three weeks. We get it, right? Three weeks from Genesis. Sometimes we get behind a little bit so you have to catch up. All right. I'm going to leave you with this. <laughs>
is a little enticement, and that is the entire Bible is that story of the exodus and readiness, the coming from God and coming back to God. Always going away from God and coming back to God. Away from God and coming back to God. And so watch this. Adam and Eve were in paradise, Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, paradise. They were cast out. They bring good things to life. Okay. Abraham was called by God in the Ur of the Chaldees. Yep. Okay. And he was called back to the Holy Land. For the Jews, the same location as the Garden of Eden. The descendants of Abraham, the twelve sons of Israel, sold their brother into slavery. Egypt. Sorry, into slavery into Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And they were cast out into Egypt. They themselves ended up in slavery in Egypt, and their descendants did. Moses and Israel was called back to the same place. Their descendants fell into sin, and they went off to Babylon. And... God called them back in. Jesus Christ left the Holy Land, went out to the Jordan River, met John the Baptist, gathered his followers, and headed right back in. That's the whole Bible. So where are we Okay? So listen, when we you're gonna go through Lent, take to heart what I say, you got a few days left, pack your bags well. I'm not gonna see you well, I'll see you next Tuesday, but anyways, pack your bags well, pack them now. And then we got all these things coming up, Father Groeschel and Father Mitch Pacwa. But right after Easter, we're gonna start our series, Salvation History. And trust me, you don't wanna miss that. We do it once a year. And and, and uh, I don't know if it's Tuesday or Thursdays, yeah, I'll probably do it on Thursdays. Um, but you don't wanna miss it. So we're gonna take these principles, we're gonna put them to use, and we're gonna run one side to the other so that you can take the whole Bible and understand every single book, when it was written, why it was written, to whom it was written, who was writing it, and you're going to be able to tell me by the end of it, person by person, every single descendant of Jesus Christ, from Adam to the Gospel of Luke to Jesus, by memory, you're going to be able to tell me that. I promise you. Seven classes. All right, let's finish in prayer. <laughs> Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us. Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, Father. Father, can you give us your blessing? Grace to the Lord Jesus Christ, the loving God, the Father, the communion of the Holy Spirit be upon you. Help you and protect you at all times, both now and ever. And I'm ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Okay.